VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Friday VinePair podcast. And before we get into the news and all that stuff, I just want to clear something up. A few people emailed in <laughs> thinking that I'm like gone forever <laughs> when I was counting down. First of all, guys, I found out the business. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> we can't get rid of him. Literally, I can't be fired. <laughs> um, the, bo- the, the board could try to vote me out, but mm-hmm. I would totally shivroy them. Like, so good. Um, but yeah, but other than that, no, man, I'm here. I'm just taking paternity leave. <laughs> so I'll just be gone for the rest of the summer, which will... Allow for some rousing conversations between Joanna and Zach. That was Whoever a little sarcastic guys... of you, no? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, someone's got to bring the energy. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys gonna have any guests? Have you thought about it? I think we will probably. There's been a request for McCurdy to come back, but apparently only if he doesn't insult parents. <laughs> That's literally what someone said. If what? He doesn't insult parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was I great. I agree. Uh, um, but otherwise, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe some other cool people, maybe. But, yeah, I am coming back. I'll be back right after Labor Day. Um, but, you know, we'll talk about that more on my last episode on for Monday. Monday. Yeah, mm-hmm. so uh, without further ado, Joanna, let's get to the news. To the news. What have you been writing about? <laughs> what have we been writing about? Um, this week we published a really wonderful article from writer Susanna Skiver-Barton on kind of the state of bourbon yeah. and what that means for its future. Um, I thought this was a great exploration of kind of, you know, where we're at. The piece is called, like, Have We Reached Peak Bourbon? Basically, there's been a ton of investment. It's wildly popular as a category right now. Um, but, you know, have distillers kind of learned from the past um, where, it's kind of ebbed and flowed as a category and how are they preparing for that in the future? Um, I think that that was a really amazing piece that she wrote and she kind of explores like what's happening with VC funding and private equity getting involved in it and what that could possibly mean for bourbon's future as well. I found it to be very fascinating. I think the biggest thing, the like the story inside the story of this article was the discussion of the private equity and VC funds mm-hmm. and what actually could happen with all this bourbon that they're buying because right. it's very unclear. Because they're buying new whiskey that yes. they're hoping to sell when it ages. Right. They're si- they're buying it speculatively. Mm-hmm. It's becoming another asset class. Yep. But this isn't like because when I first was thinking about this when when t- when Tim was telling me about the piece when it was being created he was like oh there's like this really interesting thing I think could be another article or a longer conversation etc and I was like oh well are you ta- is she talking about things like you know the massive investment by private equity into like Bardstown sure and he's like no 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 this is like literally investors buying barrels yeah and just like speculatively holding it and I think. The thing that could be interesting here is like this could be a version of other markets that bust when there's so much being held and then a bunch of people decide who don't really know much about this asset class besides the fact that right now it's gaining in value to flood the market happens in art. It happens in wine. It happens in real estate. Right. To flood the market at some point when they deem that this thing being held doesn't have value anymore like in a decade right and could that really cripple a majority of the bourbon market look every market has booms and busts our economy has booms and busts i think what's really 
foolish in alcohol is to ever believe that anything will be on top forever or will grow forever. Like that is, I think, one of the things that's so interesting about this article and and bears, you know, really taking seriously. Like everyone thought vodka was going to be on top forever. Like it's slowly waning. Tequila won't be on top forever. Like we thought that wine was untouchable among millennials. And like we spent the past year, basically the three of us talking about how, you know, wine is kind of fucked at this point. Right. And had, had, totally ignored the millennials that were coming into the category and let them find something else to drink beer craft beer like everything has ebbs and flows i i definitely don't believe that we're in this state of the world where like you know we're, people are going to tur- fully turn away from alcohol i think a lot of that is noise i was listening to a podcast uh earlier this week where like you know, a business consultant was talking about how, like, well, like, everything happening at Bud Light's no surprise because, like, no one wants to drink alcohol anyways. I think that's complete bullshit. Right. I think, you know, humans have consumed alcohol for millennia. They will look to consume alcohol, maybe in different ways. But I do think that the categories are always going to have their peaks and valleys. And, like, there will be a valley for bourbon. Who knows when it will come? It may not come in the next five or ten years, but it's going to come. And... If you're a smart business person, you're thinking about that now. Well, I think it's also interesting because she mentions that or a lot of them are, you know, preparing for that in a number of different ways. But also, you know, the global market for bourbon is largely untapped at this point. So that's also another opportunity for the category. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting, the the point made in the piece as well, that, you know, a lot of these distilleries, these brands being attached to larger multinational uh, beverage companies provides them with a sort of fallback position that, you know, distilleries in the 80s didn't have, right? You were an independently operating bourbon distillery. And if people stopped wanting bourbon, your basically only option was to stop making bourbon. And, you know, that provides a certain floor to the bourbon industry, at least in some of these cases. And I think the other piece that is important to note here, too, is that we've been through one period where old you know, sort of almost discarded bourbon was became tremendously valuable when the kind of consumer market swung back towards bourbon. I don't think you're going to see a lot of these distilleries shutter, stop producing things, sell off their barrels to be blended away into the cheapest whiskey imaginable, because there's just too much knowledge now about how short term that thinking is. I'm not saying it won't happen with a single barrel, but I think that a lot of this stuff that's being put away with the intention of aging for a long time will come to market it might come to market at a price lower than some of these brands are assuming it will in 10 or 15 years. Cause as we said, that market is very hard to predict that far out, but I don't think it's going to get, you know, innocuously blended away or dumped down a drain or whatever. Yeah. What about you, Zach? Well, actually that was the piece I was first going to highlight, but of course <laughs> yeah. it was important to be, be prepared for the in- inevitability that Joanna would uh, snipe mine from <laughs> me. So I, I, again, I have to like highlight a piece that, I found really interesting, I think specifically because it's a subject that I care almost nothing about in in a sense. Uh, and that was the piece that uh, Nicolette Baker wrote about these sort of sh- drink brand shoe collaborations. Like yeah. sneaker culture is just a, it's like an alien world to me. So I, I won't claim to speak with any degree of insight. The piece is great. You can read it. You can get a sense for why these, collab- or these sort of... Um, collaborations and crossovers are so appealing to sneakerheads. I will just say that like it's just I just I don't know I I can't decide I don't even I don't have a comment I guess. It just I enjoyed reading it. Like I said it's this interesting thing about how how these even come to be 
who they are designed for. And then, of course, uh, as is the case with many of these limited release sneakers, you know, what the secondary market is for them and how kind of desperately people seek after these shoes once they do hit that secondary market. Mm -hmm. So the other piece I would encourage people to read is the oral history of Brooklyn's Long Island Bar. Oh, yes. Um, We published that last Friday, uh, written by Brad Thomas Parsons. But I think Long Island Bar is the bar that if you would ask the majority of especially writers in the drink space, they would tell you is the best bar in New York. Um, if you talk to lots of industry veterans, and I've been working in the industry a long time, not just people who have been in it for a quick minute and like are looking for the new hotness, they would also tell you their favorite bar is Brooklyn's Long Island Bar. I think it's really interesting that lots of bartenders who have run other famous bars in New York all somehow wind up taking shifts at Long Island Bar still to this day. I think that speaks to the owners of Long Island Bar mm-hmm. um, and their personalities and, and how respected they are. Um, Toby, who's the sort of face of the bar, um, you know, is obviously famous for inventing the Cosmopolitan, but also just a really, you know, great guy and has created this bar that's just a pleasure to drink at. Yeah. And that isn't trying to be too cool, has never received the uh, accolades of other bars, which I think is really interesting. Like, Never been on the top 50 list, like, even though it should be, you know, never won, like, a Spirited Award, even though it should have, right? It's just been this really amazing, solid bar, which is, I think, a bar that other bars around the country actually do and should aspire to. Um, Well, it's not, like, cutting edge. It's just, like, a really solid, amazing bar. But what's interesting is, like, even their original creations are extremely creative delicious etc it's just that what doesn't make it cutting i think that's what you know this is for another discussion but i think what makes it interesting is that what doesn't make it cutting edge to people is that they took a historic bar and basically revitalized it and brought it back to life they didn't take a space and gut it and bring in like the new hot shit furniture and stuff and like make it feel super trendy they literally made it feel like the bar has felt like for the hundred years that building has been there but they put an amazingly talented cocktail program and food program, to be honest, inside that bar, which is why I think people love it so much. Whereas like some of the cocktail bars you go to in New York, Seattle, D.C., et cetera, all are you know fully themed and crazy art on the walls and dark, low-lit, whatever, and all trying to immerse you into the world of this place, which I think also – I mean we've talked about my – feelings about top 50 forever now and how bullshit i think it is but like that you know whatever man i'm just gonna go out with a bang but uh (laughs) you're coming back don't forget yeah but (laughs) burn it down as i leave (laughs) but uh but like i think a lot of those bars actually are shells of what the long island bar is and they're all fucking gimmicks that you know get pressed because of the gimmickry but they're not they're not bars that can last forever. They're bars that you hear going under within five to six years unless they can maintain their spot on these lists because they are not cool and new anymore. And I think the Long Island Bar is a place that has the potential to be there for a very long time. So, yeah, it's an amazing profile. You should you should read it. It's the oral history of how they brought the bar back to life. And they talk to a lot of very – Brad talks to a lot of very well-known writers, personalities, et cetera, and who all basically profess their love for the space. Mm-hmm. So, for this Friday's episode, we got a reader email. Again, we love when you guys uh, email in. 
talking about an experience that she had uh, at a restaurant over the over I think two weekends ago, last weekend, something like that, where given the new technology at this bar and restaurant, the bill was shared with her on a uh, on a phone screen. The bill was had no itemized receipt, right? Just the the total, like you would get, like at a coffee shop at this point in time, because it was using one of these, probably Square or Stripe or something like that, and was read audibly out loud to her, which she found very off putting. First, because she didn't see an itemized bill, but also because it being read audibly out loud to her was kind of gauche in that you know she was treating a guest, and now the guest totally knows the full total of the bill, and also then can potentially see how much you're tipping, all that stuff, and caused us to have a conversation between the three of us on Slack about whether or not we kind of think all all of this new technology that was heralded especially during co- you know the the emergence from covid is actually ruining bars and restaurants and sort of where we think we will be next year by this time and i'm going to make a pretty bold prediction i think that any good restaurant by this time next year will have gotten rid of the qr code mm-hmm. i think any place that cares about guest experience and creating a true environment is going to realize that the amount of money that they have been saving on paper and ink pales in comparison to how fucking annoying it is to see everyone in the restaurant with their phones out at all times looking at a menu or trying to scroll through a menu you all you both know my hatred of the ipad wine list Mm -hmm. and basically all this does this qr code fucking menu is create an a mini ipad wine list on everyone's phone and I'm not here for it. I hope everyone else isn't here for it. And I think that a lot of great restaurants are, are sick of it. Yeah. I mean, I think this was all born out of necessity, right? Like we had to do this and make, make this transition because nobody wanted to touch touch menus anymore. And this was the safest uh, course forward. But I but I think, yeah, the, the restaurants and bars that's like – hung on to this technology and the QR codes and everything like that, I think they, they've made a mistake because I, I really don't enjoy that experience. I think it is so obnoxious when people have their phones out when you're out to dinner or at a bar just in general. I'm sure you've all encountered this, but even when like my parents have their phones out to have the light on, on the menu mm-hmm. is just like, just <laughs> awful. It's horrible. It's awful. Um, I, I went to a bar a couple of months ago where I had to order with my phone Mm -hmm. and like had to download an app to do that. And that really stunk. Um, So I I am looking forward to this this uh, going away. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be cognizant of of a thing here, which is that I, I have to remind myself sometimes when this conversation comes up that like. Well, two things. One is that sometimes when I hear myself talking about this, I'm like reminded of the people in my life, say my parents, who are like still basically believe that the only proper way to like read the newspaper is in print and like reading it on their computer or phone is like a sort of grievous insult. I mean, they do it now because that's just kind of how it's done. And I share that sentiment to some degree. Uh, I also like technology in certain ways. So I can understand that for any individual person, there might be a a different sort of balancing point where the degree of expedience is balanced against the sort of alienating nature of these technologies. And I also want to acknowledge that for a certain small subset of people who might be going out to dine or drink, there is a certain, they appreciate perhaps being able to limit their interpersonal interactions with the service staff because they're maybe a little bit uncomfortable in that setting or whatever. That's it. You mean from like COVID? Still? No, I don't mean specifically code. I mean people who just have social anxiety and things like that. <laughs> um, 
no, I don't I mean, want to talk to anybody. Yeah. yeah just or, or, or less than, you know, maybe don't want to as much as the standard, you know, pre COVID rest, pre this technology restaurant interaction might've demanded. That said, I think that it's important to recognize that where a lot of this comes from is, yeah, maybe COVID was a, a prompt for some spaces. I think a lot of it has been that these kinds of technologies have been touted to a certain kind of operator as a money-saving enterprise, right? Not just, as Adam mentioned, saving on paper and ink, but saving on labor, right? You know, you don't have to have as much staff if your guests have to do more of the work themselves. And that goes to things like counter service. It goes to things like, you know, eliminating the kind of uh, interaction that a server might have with a table and explaining the menu to them and instead allowing you to staff a similar sized restaurant with fewer wait staff. And all of these things, I think, have been at the sort of crux of this ongoing struggle in the restaurant and bar space of, you know, again, attempting to cut costs via cutting labor because labor is a big cost for any business, uh, any restaurant business or bar business. And one that, you know, for a long time was seen as, you know, kind of something that operators had to just kind of accept, right? But as you've seen in big cities like Seattle, like New York, as you know, minimum wages have been raised in Seattle, the minimum wage is very high and is not a tipped minimum wage. So you know, you have to pay someone full minimum wage and then tips if they're a front of the house worker, um, or something along those lines, you've seen a lot of different ways for operators to try and keep costs low, whatever, talk about service charge in here some other time. But the point is, is that where where this has gone wrong, besides perhaps, you know, prioritizing operator profits over labor, is that it's these technologies, as I said, are really alienating to most diners and drinkers, right? You don't go to a restaurant or bar to be physically separated from the people you're with or the people in the space by your phone screen, unless you want to be. Yeah. And you don't go there to kind of have like a, a, a interaction with the person serving you that reduces them to kind of like the person who drops the thing off at your table and then kind of like silently stands there, hopefully, when you like get out your credit card or tap your phone or whatever, right? And I'm not saying that there's a lot of romance in the act of like getting a paper receipt and scanning it for make to make sure that everything was charged correctly. And then, you know, doing the little thing where you put the card in the, the you know, check presenter and then whatever, even though that was a lot of my life. But um, I do think that for a lot of people, even if you don't, always be if you're not always able to put your finger on what's missing when you go into a place where you know you're just kind of everything is screens and everything is so distanced from other people yeah i think it's alienating i think those places become for a lot of people not everyone but for a lot of people just less enjoyable to go to and you find either other places to go or you don't go out as much and i again i think it's like chasing a kind of short-term profit boost that just or or you know sort of um and not profit boost, a, you know, cutting costs that is going to, in a lot of these cases, really hurt your long-term viability because people who feel alienated will stay away. Do you think that it's actually why they're doing it is to cut costs? Yes. Really? Uh, yes. I think also to cut time spent. So now we're going to go on an Adam rant. You guys ready? Yeah, do <laughs> sure. it. Cool. So I promised at least one before I was out of here for a little bit. So <laughs> here's my rant, right? They're doing it to cut costs in a lot of ways. But the biggest problem I have, and I think this is inexcusable, inexcusable, if you have a stupid QR code menu, there is no excuse for that menu to not be up to date. 
Oh, sure. And there is so many examples I can give over the last year plus where lists are out of date. Menus have items that aren't on them anymore. This was supposed to be the case that we were being made by operators as to why that this was so good for them. Right? They don't have to worry about staff time to make sure the wine list updates. They don't have to reprint the full wine list every night, blah, blah, blah. Well, then, motherfucker, update the list. Yeah. Go into the doc where that is, you know, the HTML code that is powering your list online and delete the line that says this rose that you haven't had for two months. Right? But instead, they don't do that. And so, what's the point then of the digital product? Right? We go in daily and make changes that are. That we get alerted to by brands, et cetera, when we get something wrong, when there's a misspelling, there's a grammar error, et cetera. Like, we are constantly updating the content of the site if there's issues because we understand we run a digital publication, and that is a luxury of running a digital publication. If we make that mistake in print, we can't correct it. And people kind of excuse it in a lot of ways. Well, I went to print, blah, blah, blah. This is digital, you can fix it. It almost never happens, and I think it is so lazy, and I think it is why there are a group of people that are also kind of just like, what's the point of these then? Like, I'm on my phone, I'm scrolling, and you're telling me seven out of the ten wines that I've chosen you don't have anymore, but they're on your digital list. Like, at least with a paper list, if you wanted to save money, I used to go to restaurants where, like, they would just cross Cross them out with a pen. Fine. (laughs) Do that. Or, like, oh, gosh, there's this other restaurant that... I, I like, but this kind of annoys me. They always, they stamp sold out, like a red mm-hmm. stamp on the list. But like, fine, whatever. Like, at least that's something that they they do and that kind of feels fun. That feels like there's like high demand for the wines they're pouring and whatever. But like, it's just, it's so lazy, man. Well, if you're going to go with the QR menu, then you need to have, it needs to be updated. I hate the QR menu. I yeah. really do. And also, then, give me Wi-Fi then. Yeah, then give me Wi-Fi. What's yeah. your Wi-Fi password? <laughs> yeah. Why am I using my data? <laughs> Or I have no service in here, so you need to give me Wi-Fi so I can look at your menu. It's so annoying. Well, and then and everyone think- has their their everyone has their phones out the whole time, yeah. and then you see three of your of your like dining companions on fucking Instagram, yeah. Yeah. and you're just like, well, okay, cool. I guess we were. I guess we're not hanging out. We could we could have done this at home, right? Yeah. Well, and I wonder too why these restaurants, which presumably are still intending for the the sort of bulk of their business, the heart of their business, to be in person dining want their dining experience to be virtually indistinguishable from getting takeout. Like to me, that's the other big thing here, right? Like the whole point of people dining in person, the whole thing that we spent years on this podcast talking about lamenting that, you know, for good reason, in a lot of cases, COVID had greatly limited or completely shut down or at various stages, you know, kind of made more difficult. Part of what we were talking about, part of what we were saying we all missed and that everyone else was missing too, was the, the romance of of dining and drinking out, of doing a thing that gets you out of your normal routine, whether it's with friends, with family, with loved ones, with whomever, you know, even, you know, clients or business partners or any of that stuff. And to turn that into what is functionally an interface that's not all that different from, you know, Postmates or whatever, is just kind of fucking stupid of these restaurants. It's, again, just a very short-sighted, like, oh, this is easier or cheaper right now. But again, it's just you know, there's so many forces working to push people out of restaurants and bars right now, right? You know, costs, and we'll talk, we've talked and we'll continue to talk a lot about that. But also just a a fact that people have, you know, had this, you know, even as many people have returned to something like normalcy over the last year or whatever, you know, still this kind of lingering memory of like, oh, well, you know, I, I, 
I got by fine with takeout or got by fine at home. And do I really want to deal with the restaurant experience? And if that experience isn't magical to people, if it is, again, not that different than sitting on your couch scrolling through your phone in the evening because you don't know what the fuck else to do, then people will stop paying restaurant prices for the privilege of doing that in a different space than their home. I agree. But also just coming back to the the email we received, I don't even know what the approach would be there. Why would why the server would just say the tab? Zach, this has happened to you before you, you mentioned, right? Yeah. What are you supposed to do? I mean, I think the answer is laziness, maybe. I mean, just bad server. Like, yeah, yeah. to some extent, it's just that. I mean, I've never worked, you know, I never worked in a place uh, where they had fully transitioned to like these kind of, you know, table side, you know, credit card processing equipment. You know, I, I took my orders to a, you know, point of sale system and rang them in that way. And if someone was paying with a credit card, which they almost always were, you know, I take the card back to the, to the computer and run it that way, which, you know, <laughs> feels deeply old fashioned now. Uh, but it goes to show you how much things have changed in the last three or four years. And uh, any case, but I, I think that part of it is just sort of a like, yeah, you know, most people probably don't care. Here's the total. That's all you really, that's the only piece of information you really need. But to to verbalize it in a setting where, yeah, and the, as uh, our listener emailed in, you know, where they were paying is definitely awkward. And even if the mm-hmm. person they're treating doesn't care and isn't maybe isn't even paying attention. It's still, yeah, as the host, you don't, as a person treating, you don't really want to make all of it their business. And I think that, you know, again, this comes back to that question of the romance and the sort of mystique of dining out, right? Mm -hmm. It's that when you want the price of what you're paying for in the sense of like what the total is to be discreet, it can and should be made discreet, right? You know, the check can be presented to you in a closed, you know, uh, uh, check presenter and you can choose to look at it when and where you want and you can be as and scrutinize it as closely or as uh or you can just you know as you want or you can just look at the total and throw your card down or whatever and like that you know leaving that decision up to the individual guest is what good service is about to some extent as it is in many other things and instead of kind of forcing them down a path which may be to some extent driven by the technology again i don't really know but i think that a lot of them you know it's it's relatively difficult like there's a place that we we dine out a lot with the kids where you know yeah we just get told the the total and you know i'm often presented the screen to like confirm that the price is right or that the items on it are correct but sometimes the server doesn't do it and this is like a family friendly pizza restaurant that like i don't re- i mean a our total <laughs> is like almost always basically the same amount because we get basically the same things because you know <laughs> kids are boring but also because not my kid yeah yeah i know <laughs> they're all special i promise <laughs> delicate flowers yeah 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 the thing i was saying is i think that but part of it is also just like the the total amount isn't significant enough that if it's a couple dollars off i'm gonna really cause a scene anyhow yeah but i think that you know in a different kind of establishment than the places we're really talking about yeah you know you want to give people the opportunity to feel like they're just they're being treated the way they want to be treated and since you as the server you as the even as the you know uh business can't always know that you have to create space for people to have the kind of experience they want to have. And for some people that is picking up the paper tab and like looking through and che- double checking the prices against the menu or whatever, and being like, I feel, you know, I'm confident that this total that I'm being asked to pay is the right amount. Cause for some mm-hmm. people that leaves them feeling at ease, other people don't care and that's fine too, but you shouldn't rob people of the option to make that decision out of, you know, some misplaced notion of expediency. I mean, I think I'm not advocating right for like, we go back to the days where like, so certain genders are presented menus without prices, right? No. But, I mean, that did happen to me in Italy recently. I think we've discussed it on the podcast. But, like, I do think 
that when you're dining out with people, especially if you're ordering off of like a wine list where one per- like I don't need the people I'm dining out with if if especially if I'm treating and I'm being asked to just pick the wines and whatever like this isn't a collaborative conversation right we're not saying oh let's all choose together and we're all splitting the bill right I'm treating I don't need people to know what I've picked in terms of the cost mm-hmm. like if they love the wines that's that's all I care about that's mm-hmm. what I hope I don't need them to know that well they might have loved the wines more because the wine was a few hundred dollars or the wine was 45 or 50 I mean not in New York but one perchance to dream um, but that like you know and then they think less of me because that you know what I mean they don't need to know either way Either way. Yeah. And I think that that's what's troublesome when someone knows the total and they kind of figure out, okay, well, so my pasta was 27. Whoa, Adam spent, you know, at, <laughs> like, whoa. I think that's just, yeah, it's, it's not cool. And, but I do think that that is a product of, the, of it just being a bad server and someone having a bad night, someone being lazy, someone, you know. And I do think as well, this was reminded to me last week when I was at a lunch, like, we're really hard on dining experiences because of the cities we live in. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of our listeners live in cities where there's an actual service industry where people make careers in the service industry. And then there's lots of other places where we choose to vacation or go to where the service industry is made up by people who do not plan to make this their career, right? It's college kids. It's people. It's kids in high school. It's people between jobs. It's lots of different things. And those people take the dining experience differently and their approach to their job differently, even while potentially the restaurateur is trying to deliver an experience that feels like a city based on what they've read, experienced, et cetera, because they're having tourists from those cities. And I think that's, yeah, and that's, it's hard to put the same kind of, uh, you know, requirements and expectations on those people. Yeah. But I also think this is, this is where getting back to the point of this episode is important. The technologies that are being used in this case, and to and to clarify for our listeners, the email that we got came from someone who was in Chicago, so not yeah, a, it was a big city, <laughs> not a place where this excuse flies. But I definitely hear you, Adam, and, and I agree that sometimes it's important to remember that uh, distinction in different markets and different places. But again, this is where the technology facilitates or inhibits the kind of experience that you, as an operator, might want to provide. And the reality is, in a system where you know, in a in a more antiquated system where someone has to present an itemized bill and process payment away from the table, you would never walk up. I can I can't even imagine a server anywhere walking up to the table with the you know check presenter and being like, "That's one hundred and sixty eight dollars." As they set the check down, like that's just not how that interaction works because you don't have to say it. The, the it's these right there on the paper, and so this in a way moving to the system where you're processing payment table side because it's faster or seems you know, snazzy or, or you got talked into it by a, the salesperson for the technology who promised you that it would save you X, Y, and Z or whatever. That also creates these opportunities for poor service to arise. And, you know, those are the kinds of downstream effects that I think a lot of times these technologies, the people who adopt them don't really think about either because they just are blind to them or because they don't see them as being relevant. But I think for most diners and drinkers, they are. And I think that's the the problem, right? You don't want to be put in a position where your experience is being sort of ruined or at least lessened for any reason. And bad service can come about from lack of attention to detail or not caring. 
but it can also come out from circumstances that are foisted upon the server by by the restaurant and the operator. And sometimes that's like, yeah, telling people that the only way to figure out what the hell they're serving for dinner is like by getting their phone out and scanning a QR code. And that's not the server's fault, even if in a sort of broader sense, I think it is bad service. This is a great question. I'm so glad that it was asked. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think. Hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com. How, you know, we'd love to hear your impressions of technology in bars and restaurants. And before we go, I do want to give a quick shout out. So Paul Brady and Nathan Kendall this weekend <laughs> have taken it upon themselves, members of the VinePair 50 class of this year, to throw themselves a VP, a VP 50 party at Paul Brady Wine in Beacon, New York. Uh, if you guys happen to be in Beacon this weekend, you should go. It's going to be an epic party. I sadly can't uh, go for a variety of reasons, but hopefully some VinePair people are going to be up there as well. Uh, and I just think it's so awesome that these guys – were you know so thrilled to be on the list that they're throwing themselves a party and have been great supporters so just shout out to them thanks guys really appreciate all the love and joanna and zach i will talk to you on monday have a great weekend sounds great thanks so much for listening to the vine pair podcast the flagship podcast of the vine pair podcast network if you love listening to this show or even if you don't but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.